This Week at Hope Point. Picture that one person. Put them in your mind. Imagine having that conversation with them, walking them through what Christ has done in your life and experiencing them say, I want to follow that Jesus. I want you to picture when that moment happens, bringing them this card and saying, friend, you were my one. And I prayed every one of these verses over your life. And I pleaded, I begged God to save you. Welcome to the family. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Caleb speaks to us from God's holy word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5 today. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. I want to read a story to you of this very thing happening. A few men identifying one friend that they could take to Jesus and some miraculous transformations that took place when they did that. It really does happen one person at a time. I hope you don't feel an overwhelming sense of pressure that I'm asking any one of you to change the world. I'm just asking you to find one person to change their world, one at a time. And as we do that, as we link arms together as as Christ's church to be about this business, watch and see some crazy things happen. We're going to begin here in Luke 5, verse 17. And I want you to see this story. Pay attention to the characters. There's a few characters we want to take note of and learn from what to do and what not to do when it comes to dealing with people in need. I'm going to begin in verse 17, if you're ready. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees, and this is Jesus teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the large crowd, all these people that had gathered to hear Jesus speak, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. They bring in a paralyzed man looking for physical healing. And Jesus says that your sins are forgiven you. Verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, they didn't say these things out loud. He literally read their minds, their collective Pharisee minds. He answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk. And I'd ask you, church, answer that question for yourselves. Which is easier to say? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says this to the Pharisees. Then he turns and looks to the man who is paralyzed. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, no lag time needed, He rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is what happens when caring, compassionate men take ownership of the need of their friend and they carry him to the feet of Jesus. 
And all the people there were amazed at what had happened. I want us to look at a couple of characters here. Let's, let's begin by looking at these religious leaders. After all, they're the first characters mentioned. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus had a special place for them in his heart. It wasn't a very kind one, I don't think, but because of their behavior. But as Pharisees, these men, by, by definition, their name meant separated ones. And they were adamant about that. They wanted everyone to know that, that they were separated set apart from the other Jews. As leaders meant to guide those around them, they rather built up a wall and prevented them access to, to, to themselves, but also access into the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, Jesus would say of them in Matthew 23, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. And you're chasing of knowledge and intellect and a full understanding of the law so that you can know it down to a T for your own self-righteousness, not to really please God. You're hypocrites. You know all this stuff, but you do none of it. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What harsh criticism of these men from Jesus. Not only are you not entering into the kingdom of God because of your self-righteousness and your pride and your arrogance and your intellectual haughty behavior, but you're also blocking others, the very ones you were meant to guide and lead in, you're blocking them from entering the kingdom. And we see their coldness even in this story, immediately following the healing of this man, this man that they should have felt compassion for, this man who was broken, who was not brought to the feet of Jesus by them, but by these other friends of his, their immediate reaction is blasphemy. That's the reason they came to this talk. They didn't come to learn from Jesus. They came to pick apart his message, find fault in him, and they quickly think they found it. But in their pursuits of intellectual understanding, of, of head knowledge, they're foreign to the ways of God. No true love in their hearts for him. No love for neighbor, which is the mark of someone who is a follower of God. Love for God, love for neighbor. They have neither of these, these traits in their intellectual indulgence. And I, I personally feel a tendency to drift in that direction. And this pursuit of more and more understanding and knowledge and intellect. Aren't we, don't we have a tendency to just read one more book, attend one more seminar, seminar, subscribe to one more podcast, be involved in one more Bible study, take a little bit better notes on Sunday morning so I can know more and more and more. But when do we start doing it, practicing it? I'm convinced that intellectual indulgence really has a tendency to produce practical paralysis. And so you have these leaders, these Pharisees, who know so much more than anyone else in the room, and yet they are just as paralyzed as that man lying on the cot when it comes to actually practicing true religion, displaying the heart of God to the people. I don't want to be like that. I don't want that to characterize this church or the Church of America. People who know so much but do so little at furthering the kingdom of God. It reminds me of a story. man wrote a book called People Sharing Jesus. And listen to the story he tells about some fishermen. He says, now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish. And the fish were hungry week after week, month after month, and year after year. These who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked. 
all about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means and defended fishing as an occupation and declared that fishing is always to be the primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They created witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. But one thing they didn't do, they did not fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were even more fish. The board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and to decide what new stream should be brought about to fish in. But the staff and committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. They could get an official fishology degree. They could get their fishing license, but so few fished. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish when they're fished, and how to approach and feed the fish. But so few of the fishermen ever got into the water. You see where I'm going with this? Christ, when he began his ministry, called a few men to follow him and immediately said, in following me, you will become fishers of people. This is is what it meant to follow him. And he's called us to fish. The need is great. He has come. His mission statement was clear. The son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. Who's coming with me? Who's going to go and get them? Who's going to fish? There's a recent Lifeway research study that was done to kind of evaluate how the American church is doing here. They asked the question, in the past six months, How many times did you share with someone how to become a Christian? And you can look in all at the number of people who said zero times, never, over half would say never have I, or not never in the last six months have I showed someone how to become a Christian. And what I want to really draw your attention to is this 91% right here who would say less than five times in six months, aka less than once a month, which is what I'm calling us to here in Who's Your One. Only about 9% of the American Christians today who were in this survey would say they're actually doing that, sharing the gospel with one person a month. Though 100% of American Christians were called to fish. This is what the numbers say. Now, I don't show this chart to beat anyone down or to make any assumptions about who's gathered here today. I just seek to draw light on the state of our country as a church. We have work to do, fish that need to be caught, people that need to hear. And if we're going to be like the cold religious leaders who are seeking to, to build their intellect and not build the kingdom, we'll never be involved in the work of these friends and bringing their, their lost and hurting friends to Jesus. So let's look at them instead as an example. Look at verses 18 and 19. We see them bringing their paralyzed friend who has a great need. And it says, they sought to bring him and lay him before Jesus. They did not seek to heal him. They didn't seek to solve his problems. 
They sought to bring him to the one who could. And verse 19 says, they found that when they got there, it was too crowded. The door was blocked. It was an awkward situation. So they went home and said they'd try again another day. They wanted the situation to be just right. They wanted the opportunity to be clear. They wanted an open door before they would step into ministry. Right? No, it says they found a way where there was no way because they had to get their friends to Jesus. The, the, house, the houses in this day would have likely had a staircase up on the side that would lead up to the roof. It would have been a flat roof because the, the roof would have been used much like a deck would be used for us. So life is happening up there. You're eating out there, hanging out as a family, drying out your clothes out there. So they would have gone up to this flat roof, a thatched roof with, with mud and clay and straw put together. And then these tiles that built a strong surface and layer by layer, they dug into this roof, created a hole. You just imagine you're, you're one of the audience members sitting in on Jesus' TED Talk here. And then straw just starts dropping on your, on your head. And, and you see a stretcher being lowered down. And Jesus is just standing there. And now there's this limp, almost lifeless, paralyzed, still body lying before him. And these pleading men saying, Jesus, we need your help. This is what concerned friends do when they have someone in need. They're operating out of a sense of urgency, a radical urgency that I will do whatever it takes to get my friend to Jesus. They're operating out of two real beliefs. Belief number one, my friend's need is great. Belief number two, Jesus is the only hope he has of healing. And when those two beliefs are put together, people are willing to do some pretty crazy, radical, urgent things. When they truly believe their friend is in grave danger and need and that Jesus is the only source and hope of healing. Do you believe those two things about your one? I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that even as I've been talking, that there is a name, a, a face stirring within you that you're trying to push back into the back of your head and you just can't. Someone that you know right now you could carry to the very feet of the healer. Do you believe those two things about them? Do you believe that their need really is great? Do you see Jesus as the only hope for them? If the answer is yes, what is keeping us from running them to Jesus? as fast as we can, not letting any obstacle stand in our way, not letting any sense of awkwardness or it's just not the right time or wait till they ask me. No, I'm tearing the roof down because I have to get my friend to Jesus. My coworker I've known for 30 years to Jesus. This hurting person sitting in my chemistry class to Jesus. When Paul talks in Colossians about the striving, the toiling of those who proclaim the message of Christ, this is what he's talking about. It's hard work. But we don't let anything get on the way until the job is done. We do whatever it takes. We pay whatever the cost. And if it takes three conversations or 30 years, we don't quit proclaiming the message of Jesus until our friend is healed. 
But notice where Jesus goes here. It goes beyond just uh, a simple healing of a paralyzed man. Those two beliefs, my friend's need is great, and Jesus is the only hope of healing. Let's, let's see how those two sort of work together. Let's see what state this friend really is in. Um, they ask him to, to heal his body, but in verse 20, Jesus says, because of their great faith, because of his faith, to come before Jesus and ask for healing. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. They bring before him a paralyzed man with a physical ailment, a dire, serious physical need. And Jesus' first move is to address something within him, his heart. Your sins are forgiven. His spiritual state was far more of a problem than the, the physical thing that he was dealing with. And I want you to see that about your one. The person that you're thinking about right now. The neighbor that is on my heart right now. They brought a man before Jesus and said, fix him. And Jesus said, I have to deal with his sin. So for you, as you think about your one, your one's problem is not just that they're struggling at work. Your one's problem is not just that he doesn't feel, really find purpose now that he's retired. The problem is not just that she's battling with anxiety and depression. It's not just that he can't make it through the day without a drink. It's not just that he feels bullied every time he steps into the school building. It's not just that, that the treatments are wearing her body down. It's not just that the bills are piling up. Your one's greatest problem is they are a sinner separated from their creator. Awaiting judgment and the full wrath of God. This is the dilemma your one finds himself in right now. And so you bring them to the feet of Jesus. What they need to hear is there is a way for your sins to be forgiven. It's interesting. R.C. Sproul, the uh, late great pastor and theologian, um, says that one time in Florida, he was offered a job by this psychiatrist. This guy reached out to him and said, man, I'll pay you $100,000 a year to come and join my team of psychiatrists. And, and R.C. was like, I... Why me? I have no training. I didn't go to school for this, no experience. I'm a pastor. And the doctor said to him, R.C., 95% of my clients don't need a psychiatrist. They need a priest because the greatest problem they wrestle with is unresolved guilt. The greatest need they need met is not a psychologist, is not a counselor is not a life coach or a marriage book or a new budget or AA. They need to hear there's a way for sins to be forgiven. This is the predicament of your one right now. And this is the need that Jesus steps in. Yes, they may be dealing with something physical or emotional or mental, but inwardly, this is a result of a sinful heart separated from God. And let's be quick to point out, this is not like the man was not paralyzed because he did something specifically wrong to earn that. This is something Jesus had to knock out with his disciples early in ministry when a blind man was brought to him. He said in John 9, the, they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this man is not paralyzed as a punishment specifically for a specific sin that he committed. No, that was a very common belief for the Jews. They would believe that if you had something bad that happened to you, you're not going to be healed until all your sins are forgiven. Every ailment, every disability is a result of either your sins or your parents' sin. And Jesus is hitting at something far greater than that, that all calamity, all sickness, all disease, all corruption is a result of the cosmic sin of the universe. It's a curse of sin that all of us have to bear. And so whether it be blindness or paralysis that we we see in our story, it's proof of the curse of sin that has been a part of our story since the very beginning. And Jesus says, I can't address the, the, the surface level thing until I get to the heart forgiving this man's sin. This is his real problem. Though he could not walk, scripture would say that he was far, in a far worse case than that, he was actually dead. As Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, not just you individually, but among whom we all once lived. All of us, apart from Christ, are not just sick or paralyzed or blind or broken or addicted. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. And we need a healer that can do more than just fix the bad habits that we have. And this is where the great healer comes in. He proves himself here to be what no man can be. When you look back at our story, verses 23 and 24, he responds to the grumbling of the Pharisees by asking this question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. And which is easier? Well, to say, a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because there's no proof of whether or not you did anything. This is an inward thing happening. It's invisible. You say, rise up and walk, we're going to know pretty quickly whether or not you're a fraud, right? The guy gets carried out on a stretcher or not. But you say sins are forgiven, who knows? I mean, anybody can make that claim. But Jesus says, in order to prove that I can do the harder thing that sounds like the easier thing, I'll let him walk. I'll heal his body as proof that I can do far greater than that, that I have authority over heaven and earth to forgive sins. And for that, he's called a blasphemer. It's interesting, isn't it? What qualifies Jesus to say your sins are forgiven? Think about it. He says it, and they say you're a blasphemer. And eventually, you get called that enough that even the court believes you're a blasphemer. And a court would sentence you to death upon a cross. And upon that cross, as your holy blood is shed, the wrath of God is satisfied, qualifying him to say, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus speaks, you're forgiven. And by speaking it, makes himself a blasphemer, which puts him on the cross, which makes him able to say, your sins are forgiven. My sins are forgiven. It's beautiful. And so he does what's seemingly impossible to prove that he actually can do what is impossible. (laughs) Forgive sins. And, and mixed in here is something I want, want you to see. This son of man that he uses, that word that he says there, 
almost comes across as like a humble, sort of meek thing, like he's relating to us as people, like, I'm just like you guys, I'm a son of man, even though we know he's really the son of God. I want you to be aware, there's nothing humble about that statement. That is a statement of his authority. You see, he's speaking to these Pharisees who were so knowledgeable, had all this intellectual prowess to know the Old Testament and the words of the prophets. When Jesus called himself son of man, he was answering a prophecy from Daniel chapter seven. Listen to this vision that Daniel sees. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's as as though Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, I'm the one Daniel was talking about. Who are you to say I can't forgive sins? I've got all dominion, an everlasting kingdom, If I say his sins are forgiven, his sins are forgiven. And if I say rise up and walk, get walking, buddy. Carry out that thing that carried you in here. There's nothing humble about what Jesus is saying when he calls himself the son of man. And this is who we bring our one before. Pressure's off you. You're simply laying this person at the feet of the son of man who says, I have all dominion, all power, all authority. I'll do the hard work. I'll forgive the sins. I'll restore the broken relationships. I'll be the one to provide redemption. You just bring them to me. Bring them to the foot of Jesus. He's the only one that can take dead people and make them alive. The only one that can really deal with sin. I love this verse. Where'd it go? Right here, Romans 6.23, super, super well-known verse. We talked about that idea that this man was dead and needed to be brought back to life spiritually. And I love this passage. For the wages of sin is death. And that wage of of, that would be death was paid by the Son of Man upon the cross so that we would not have to pay it, offering for us a free gift of eternal life with God through the work of Christ. This is what we tell our one. That though you are dead in your sins, Far worse than being paralyzed. A free gift has been offered for you because someone paid your wages. Someone took your death penalty. We have no reason to be ashamed to share this message. We are so quick, and I love that we're this way, we're so quick to tell a new guest, a visitor of this church, that we got a free gift of a coffee mug and a book out in the the lobby for them. How about eternal life with God? Let's tell them about that free gift. Let's offer this to them. This is why we bring them to the feet of Jesus because of their brokenness and because of his ability like no one else's to solve their greatest problem. I want you to see that this is the the ultimate answer to their, their problems. There's nothing else they need greater than this. They don't need anything more than they need to hear your sins can be forgiven. And I don't want my life to block anyone from having a chance to hear that message. 
to know that there is a way that they can be forgiven. And there is great need right around us. We've, we've talked about out there, the corners of the globe. You've heard it from this stage last few weeks. There's great need right here in our midst, just here alone in the upstate where we live and work and play. The, the circle around this church of about an hour, an hour, hour and a half's drive. There are a million and a half people. And it is the Bible Belt, so according to the statistics, they would say about 79% of that a million and a half people believe in heaven. But only about 35% are actually weekly practicing some spiritual activity, going to church, reading their Bible, being a part of a community. So only about a third of that a million and a half people. That means right here in upstate South Carolina, within an hour of where you're sitting right now, there's about 996,000 people who need to hear this message, who are far from God. They may not look like it from the surface, but their heart would tell you they're dead in their sin. They need to hear it from you. They're here. And we're growing rapidly as a city. The studies of where people are coming from to, to join the beautiful climate of Spartanburg, South Carolina, all four seasons in a week, we got people coming from New York, Ohio, Michigan, California, all noticeably not part of the Bible Belt, calling this place home to work or to retire. And they need to hear this message. Not only that, if you're still looking for people, if you're struggling to find a one, have you noticed all the colleges in the city? We've got more colleges here in Spartanburg than in any other pocket of South Carolina. Seven campuses of students. About 14,000 students this year in Spartanburg County. And those statistics about practicing your religion plummet when you step onto a campus. I said 35% earlier. On a college campus, it's about 5%. That means about one in every 20 students. You go into a classroom of 20, you probably have one active, growing follower of Christ. Our students in this room right now have their work cut out for them. So if you're struggling to find your one, tag along with one of them. We got two campuses within a mile of here. There's work to be done right here. People who are begging to be brought before the feet of Jesus and told you can be forgiven. And that's why I'm again going to ask you, take this card, put a name on it. Do not leave this room now without putting a name on it. And you'll see there's a perforated end to this. So I want you to go ahead, even now, Take your card, and if, and if there is a name that's cleared in your mind, someone that's close to you but is far from God, take it, write their name. You just put their first name, maybe their last initial. You don't need to put their social security number or anything like that. We're not looking them up. But if you'll write their name on both of these, these little things here, leave this blue end in one of those baskets at the back of the room because we want to get a number of how many people are being prayed for in this church. And we want to be able to have names that we as a staff can be praying for. But you take this with you and commit 30 days, I will pray for this individual every day, this scripture. And I will, in, over the next four weeks, seek to be the answer to that prayer. I will be the one to boldly proclaim to them that a way has been made for forgiveness. A way has been made for a restored friendship with Jesus. A way has been made for eternal life. I will be the one to answer that prayer for my one. I wanna ask you, even now, to do that. Don't let the moment pass you. This is far too great of a thing to be a part of, to let it slip by. And I'm believing, I've been praying all week that literally hundreds, hundreds 
of names will be written down today. And that over the next 30 days, hundreds of people will hear the gospel and find out how they can follow Jesus because of your witness, because a friend from Hope Point had something to say to them. It's worth it to do this. Now, I don't want to pretend that there's not maybe one or two people in this room who would say, I am the one. I am the paralyzed man waiting to hear that there's hope, that there is forgiveness. And so if that's you today and your heart was stirred by this message that there is one who can forgive your sins, that there is one named Jesus who took your place on the cross, who offers you forgiveness and a relationship with him, I'd encourage you to act on that stirring. I'll be down on the side and so will the prayer team during the music that's getting ready to play. Come speak with one of us. We would love to walk you through what it looks like to follow Jesus. We would love for today to be the day that you can join us in this mission. I don't want you to miss that opportunity. But for everybody else, you would say you are a follower of Jesus. Then I challenge you to do this today. I urge you. I'm going to go as far as to double dog dare you (laughs) to write a name on this card before you leave here today. And to commit to this. Do it with your families. When you go pick up your kids at HP Kids, there's a table that has these little booklets. It's a family devotional that you can do with your kids. I hope your, that your kids are also getting these cards, by the way, over on the side. I hope they don't outwork you on this. Why don't we lead the way for them? Why don't you let your kids see you praying with a broken heart for that person across the street? For that lady that cuts your hair? that guy who hands you the latte out the window. Let your kids hear you praying with a lump in your throat for that person. You just imagine what could happen. We're gonna do this together. There's gonna be reminders coming out on our social media. You can go to whosyourone.org and type in the name and join the global movement of about, I think it's uh, 71,922 people who are currently doing just this. If you wanna put that in there, and please, please, please leave this blue tab at the back so that we can know what's going on. We want to join in with you on this. And as I close, I just want you to picture for just one second, picture that one person. Put them in your mind. Imagine having that conversation with them, walking them through what Christ has done in your life, telling them that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord and experiencing them say, I want to follow that Jesus. Can you picture that happening? Can you see that conversation playing out and the celebration, whether it's three weeks from now or four years from now or whenever, them getting to put their faith in Jesus Christ? I want you to picture when that moment happens, bringing them this card, and saying, friend, you were my one. And I prayed every one of these verses over your life. And I pleaded, I begged God to save you. Welcome to the family. Wouldn't that be incredible to get to do that for someone? I'll have plenty more cards to give you when you do because there's a lot more work to be done. But wouldn't it be great to do that? 
There are people in this room, I'm sure, who have never experienced that. You've been following Jesus, coming to church, reading your Bible for maybe decades, and you maybe have never experienced that. The joy of walking a friend, someone you love, to the very feet of Jesus and saying, be forgiven, be healed. I'm asking you to join us in that this month. Imagine what could happen. Imagine it. So leave a name back in there in that basket, commit to praying, and commit to being the answer to that prayer. And may God be glorified here in the city of Spartanburg and everywhere we live and work and play as many people, hundreds of people this month get to hear about the Savior. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.